One of my favorite things to watch on TV from time to time are these survival shows. Have you ever watched these shows? They're unbelievable. And I'm not talking about Survivor, right, where they go to the island and they, like, there's this, this um, sociological reality happening. I'm talking about the dudes or, or, or the women who go and, like, try to survive by themselves or in tandem out in the middle of nowhere. Like, they, they mimic being, you know, in an accident somewhere and they've got to get rescue. And so... They're doing everything they can to survive. And I watch these shows, and I'm so enamored by them, you know. So if you are ever taking some, some crazy expedition somewhere, you want to bring me, because I have learned every secret you need to know about survival. And the truth, the funny part of this, if you know me, is that I would never be in those situations, right? I'm not interested in camping. I don't like hiking. I don't like rock climbing. I'm not big on canoeing. Any of these situations that would find you there. But if by some chance I am teleported in the night to one of these places, I've got a fighting chance because of my watching these guys. And so they have all these things they do, and inevitably, probably because the video camera's on them, they make it, right? They survive uh, against the odds. And I was thinking about this this week as I was reading through the text that we're going to cover in 1 Samuel. And the truth is, as interesting as those shows are, one of the reasons that they actually become very interesting and very poignant in terms of life is that really what they're doing in that moment is what all of us are trying to do in the midst of our lives. Most of us are just trying to make it, right? We're just trying to get from point A to point B, whatever point B is for you. We are just trying to survive. We are in a massive self-preservation project. Let's just get to the end. So we talk about that with my kids sometimes. If, if Monday starts off bad, trying to get them ready for school, I'm like, let's just get to Friday. Right? And Friday seems really far away. Or if you know, you're getting to the end of the year and you're like, what are we going to do? You're kind of checking out of school or, or whatever. It's, it's, there's just two months left. Let's just get to the end. And so much of our life really is oriented that way, if you think about it. We're just trying to preserve what we have built for ourselves. And the reality is, that is a flawed plan. It is a deeply flawed plan. And we need to look no further than the example of King Saul himself to see where self-preservation leads us. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you don't have one, that's perfectly fine. You can just listen along this morning. Samuel, or excuse me, Saul is in the midst of a massive self-preservation project. If you were with us last week, you remember that Saul was marked by disobedience and inaction, while his son Jonathan was marked by complete obedience and decisive action. And we said the key to that was faith. That faith actually mobilized and moved him into action. And Saul had what we call a a faithless obedience to God. He was willing to obey God as long as it made sense. And then as soon as things didn't add up logically in his mind, he was on to his own plan. So if you remember the one story in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul is uh, following the, the uh, plan of God. He's supposed to go to Gilgal, right? And he's supposed to wait for seven days before he can attack the Philistines. And uh, he's waiting, 
And the first day goes, and the second day goes, and the third day goes, and the fourth day goes, and the fifth day goes. And then finally, on the seventh day, there's no Samuel. And so Saul says, I've waited seven days, even though I'm supposed to wait for Samuel. I'm heading out. And as soon as he heads out, who shows up? Samuel. And Samuel says, that's it. You're done. You're toast. And we find the kingdom of Saul beginning to end. At the core of his disobedience, though, is a self-preservation plan, isn't it? What really mobilized him into action the morning of that seventh day? His army was deserting him, right? And the Philistine army was mounting for battle. As legions of Israelites left to say, I'm not fighting this war with you, legions of Philistines showed up to say, I am fighting this war against you. And Saul is going, with every day the odds of me winning are getting slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. And we know from reading scripture that in God's economy, that's good news. But in, our, in man's economy, that makes no sense. And so Saul, in self-preservation mode, says, we attack. I've waited seven days. I've checked my obedience religious box. We're going after this thing. And he heads into battle. And Samuel shows up to say, you've got it all wrong. You've missed the boat completely. And in the next couple of chapters here, as we read together, we'll find that Saul really is motivated in almost every way by self-preservation. So at the beginning of chapter 14, if you were with us uh, last week, you remember that Jonathan took action against the Philistines. Remember, he exposed himself in the valley and said, perhaps God is going to do something here. But what I know is that either by small numbers or big numbers, God will have his way. God's kingdom will be advanced. And so he exposes himself, and then when, when God affirms his plan, he climbs up the, the big cliff, and he... he kills the outpost of the Philistine that is there. And then as Saul sees this from the other side of the ravine, he says, wait a minute, good things are starting to happen. And so he calls the Israelites out of hiding. Remember, they're all hiding. And he says, we attack now. And so he leads the charge against the Philistines. And they're advancing against them, and there's chaos in the Philistine camp, so much so that the Philistines are killing each other. There's all kinds of crazy things happening. And the Israelites are on the advance, and they're winning this battle. And here's where we pick up the story. Verse 24 of 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now the Israelites were in distress that day, because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. So here we go, right? We're getting a picture of Saul's self-preservation efforts. He has put a crazy restriction on his army and said to them, You're not going to eat anything until what? my enemies are avenged. You're going you're gonna to help me kill our enemies and in so doing, preserve my rule and my kingdom and then you can eat. And so this whole self-preservation mode has, has led into this unbelievably unwise and really stupid tactical reality. Listen to how Jonathan responds to this. Uh, verse 25, the entire army entered the woods... And there was honey on the ground. 
And when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. You can imagine this, right? A full day of battle. You're winning. It's almost the end. And there's this oozing honey that is calling your name, right? If you're not into honey oozing in Old Testament times, think of whatever it is in your cabinet at home when you get there. It is calling your name. And yet the king has said you can't eat anything, right? Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath of Saul. Verse 27, But Jonathan had not heard what his father had bound the people with. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for his country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little bit of honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Saul's self-preservation effort actually hinders the preservation of his kingdom. Do you see this? The advance against the Philistines would have been greater if he hadn't put this crazy oath and bondage on his people. What's more, the curse that Saul placed on his people said that if anyone disobeyed, they had to die. And now, who is the one person who disobeys? It's his boy, Jonathan. And now Saul has bound himself in such an untenable way. And so as the chapter goes on, through casting of lots and different things, Saul discovers that it was Jonathan who ate. And Saul is willing to kill his son to avenge himself. The self-preservation has gone so far that he's willing to sacrifice his son to preserve himself. Unfortunately for Saul, and very fortunately for Jonathan, the Israelite people had different ideas. And they said, not a chance, you're touching Jonathan. And they stood in his way, and they redeemed him. And then, because Saul couldn't fulfill his curse on Jonathan, the curse comes back on Saul himself will ultimately lead to the end of his reign as king of Israel. Self-preservation, though in the moment, seems like a wonderful idea, almost always, in fact, always, has the reverse effect on us. In chapter 15, Saul is tasked by God with the, uh, with the job of defeating and destroying the Amalekite people and their army. Why? Uh, God says that because the Amalekites had, uh, had battled with the Israelites after the Exodus, had opposed them when they were coming up out of Egypt and were coming to take the land. The Amalekites attacked them and opposed them. And so God is now ready to, to have vengeance on them for their opposition of the move of the kingdom. And the command in the beginning of chapter 15 to Saul is, kill them all. And leave nothing. But the story goes on that Saul doesn't kill the king. 
kills the people, but he saves the king Agag. And he saves the best of the plunder of the land, the best of the livestock, the best of the produce, the best of the plunder. And Samuel walks into town and says, why am I hearing the calls of livestock? And Saul says, in a moment of trying to cover his missteps, and we do this, oh, we wanted to keep the best of the battle so that we could give it to the Lord for sacrifice. Well, that was not his intention, right? But this is what he does here. And Samuel says to him, no, don't try to say that you're giving it to God. You were told to not keep anything and you were disobedient. What's the matter here? And Saul says this most revealing reality. I feared my own men who demanded we do this. And so I gave in to their desires. What is motivating Saul to be disobedient in the moment? Self-preservation project, isn't it? He's fearful of his men. He wants to keep them on his side. He wants to appease them. And therefore, his appeasement leads to disobedience in following God's plan for himself. It's a self-preservation project. Furthermore, then Samuel says to him, because of this, that's it. Your kingdom is over. We're taking your rule from you. You're not going to be the king anymore. This is the end. And and, uh, Samuel goes to walk away, and Saul grabs at the corner of Samuel's garment, and it tears from him. And Saul says uh, to Samuel, please, I'm begging you. I'm repentant. I sinned. I was wrong. Don't do this. And Samuel holds up the torn garment and says, just like this robe has torn, so the kingdom has been torn from you. And then Saul, in a moment of revelation about what his real repentance is about, says, well, at least come back with me and worship with me in front of the elders of the people of Israel so that they won't think less of me. He is not repentant because he was wrong. He is repentant because people are going to think less of him for his mistakes and because the kingdom is going to be torn from him. Even his religious reaction is self-preservation. Guess what? Religion is always self-preservation. We are trying to follow religious rules and codes. Why? Because if we do that, we feel like it can deal with our inability to live the right way. And in so doing, we're trying to preserve ourselves. Do you see this, church? Saul is so given to his self-preservation project. And the truth is, so are we. So are we. You are not trying to preserve the kingdom of Israel, but you are trying to preserve the kingdom of you almost every single day of your life. And our kingdoms look different, right? Most of us are not sitting on a throne and ruling over people. In fact, I don't think any of you are doing that. I'm not certain that that's your day job, but if it is, that's pretty cool. Good for you. Uh, Most of our kingdoms look very different. And so it's hard for us sometimes to relate. We look at Saul and say, how could you do these things? You're crazy. And we're doing all of them all of the time. Our kingdoms look like Let me give you three examples that almost all of us have issues in terms of maintaining our kingdoms. Stuff. Our material stuff. This is the kingdom that we have collected. 
It is our house. It is our bank accounts. It is our 401k. It is our job that provides our stuff. It is our cars. It is our things. And we are constantly working to protect our things and to sustain our things. And so much of our life is given to self-preservation. Preserving the bank account. Preserving the future. Preserving the job. Preserving the car. Preserving the house. I'm not telling you to be reckless. We're going to talk about this in a minute when I'm asking. If it's not material stuff, it's relational stuff. We have this kingdom of our relationships and our influence. And it is, it is most defined by our status. Where we are in the social status sphere, I call it. Where we rank and who's with us, who's our posse, who's our friends, who are our enemies. And we're trying to maintain this level of authority and influence and power. And we are so dependent upon other people's opinions of us, we're bound by it. And so much of our life is given to maintaining and preserving this kingdom. Our influence, our authority, our power, our families, our friends, our relationships. And then there's also a kingdom we'll call holiness. Religious perfection or holiness, that we're trying to maintain this kingdom of holiness, of living right, of doing the right things, of checking the right boxes, of appearing to have all our eggs in a row spiritually, of being good people, of being the right thing. And so much of our religious effort rather than just being people who worship God, is given to preserving our image of holiness. You see this, church. Listen, there are way more kingdoms that you and I are preserving than just these, but these are huge ones. And what I want to suggest to you over the next several minutes is there is a different path than self-preservation. There is a much more fulfilling and joyful path than self-preservation. Here's the problem. The root of self-preservation is pride. The root of self-preservation is pride. And we see it in so many ways. Particularly, it comes out in this story in terms of fear. Fear and pride are almost always, in fact, I would suggest, though I don't all have complete evidence to prove it, that fear and pride are always connected one to the other. We are fearful because we are proud people. And this shows up in the story of Saul in two particular ways that I think are so tangible in our lives. The first is he is, a fear, he is afraid of failure. He is afraid of losing. We see it in chapter 13, right? I've waited seven days, now I've got to go. Because if I don't go now, it's going to get even worse and I may not win. And then what? My world is over. Right. What about in chapter 14 when he tells his army, you can't eat anything. Why? Until my enemies are avenged. What? Until I win. Saul is deathly afraid of losing. He's afraid of failure. And friends, the fear of failure is absolutely a pride issue. Right? It is not just some 
some psychological phobia that some of us have. Guess what? We all have it, some of us way more than others, and I'm right there with you, right? This is an issue for me. We don't like this. Why? Because we find our worth in our performance. And when we fail, our worth bottoms out. That's what we're afraid of. At the end of the day, if we lose a particular battle, if we don't get a particular promotion, if we don't do well in a particular issue of life or circumstance, we could really get over that if it was devoid of the fact that it's eternally connected to how we value ourselves. But we are so desperate to be valued that we are terrified to fail and terrified to lose. But what about this one? The fear of man. The fear of man. Listen to what Saul says when Samuel says to him, what are you doing? Why is the king of the Amalekites still alive? At the end of the day, Samuel has to have him bring the king of the Amalekites in chains and Samuel kills him. If you're not going to do what God asks to do, I'll do it. What was Saul's reasoning for this? Because my guys didn't want me to, and I wanted them to like me. It's the fear of man. And then when Saul is, has this moment of repentance that seems in the pages of Scripture to look so true and so real and so right, and he's gripping at the edge of Samuel's garment, he's pleading with him. When the curtain is pulled back, on, Sam, on Saul's heart, what do we see? It's the fear of man. Not true repentance. What are the elders going to say? What are the people of Israel going to say about this colossal mishap? How am I going to be treated? How am I going to be looked at? And friends, can I just tell you right now, the fear of man is a pride issue. Some people talk about low self-esteem. And I, we just need to be honest this morning together. High self-esteem and low self-esteem are both high levels of pride. Hear me? High self-esteem and low self-esteem are both incredibly high levels of pride. And here's why. Because all we want from people is for them to say the same thing we think about ourselves. Right? So we have high self-esteem. Why? Because people are telling us what we think about ourselves. High level of pride. I'm great. People are telling me I'm great. Everything is wonderful. What is low self-esteem? I think I'm great. Everyone else thinks I'm not great. And so I feel bad about myself. You see this? High levels of pride. There's a fantastic book that everyone should read and then memorize by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God Is Small. And he outlines this whole reality. Codependency and the fear of man. We are so desperate for people to value us the same way we value ourselves. That it leads to this great self-preservation project. We'll do almost anything to get it from them. The truth is, at the end of the day, whatever your kingdom is that you are trying to preserve, if it's your stuff, if it's your holiness, if it's your relational status, if it's something else we didn't talk about, it is all wrapped up in one word, and that word is image. What you want is the, is the self, uh, the image of yourself that you desire from other people and internally. That's what your kingdom's all about. It's not that you love money. It's that you love the power that comes with money. 
It's not that you love all of your stuff. It's that you love the social stature that you have because you have all of that stuff. It's not that you love holiness. It's that people look on you and say, wow, he really loves Jesus. Look how great he is. It's all image because we are relational people at the core. And we miss this. That's why Jesus says that money itself isn't bad. It's the love of money. It's the root of all evil. It's not wrong to be rich. It's wrong to value yourself based on your wealth. The problem is we can't do it. We value ourselves on all of that stuff all of the time. So what are the natural realities of this? How does fear fan the flames of the self-preservation project? There's two things that happen. The first is that we tighten our grip on our kingdom. Tighten our grip on our kingdom. My son is, uh, plays basketball, and the other last week we were going to, to his basketball game, and he's got his water bottle, and I was messing with it in the car, and apparently I tightened it really tight, so much so that when he went to try to get water, he couldn't even open it. It's that kind of reality. Like, it is ripped so tight, you know, your fingers are white-knuckled around your kingdom, so much so that no one could get anything out of there. And guess what? That's exactly what you want. No one would get anything out of there. You have such a tight grip on your kingdom. This is what Saul looks like. And the reverse of tightening your grip is loosening your integrity. You are so tightly gripped on our kingdom. We are so tightly gripped on our kingdoms that we have loosened our grip on integrity. And so at the core, we are ready to do almost anything to preserve our grip on our kingdom. First and foremost, compromising our integrity. Look at the story of Saul. How does he tighten his grip? I would say the key word here is bondage. And if bondage is ever the key descriptor of your life, like lights go on, right? Something is not right here, right? Let's just be honest, okay? But what does he do? He binds his men. You cannot eat until my enemies are avenged. And then he binds himself by the same curse. And then even more so, he binds himself by his desire to appease his men in chapter 15. And so he's bound by all of these things. He's tightened his grip. And the truth is, when we tighten our grip on our rules and reigns and our kingdoms in our lives, the result is always bondage. You are bound by what you have. You know, there's so many people who are so wealthy that are living with such anxiety that one day their wealth will be gone because they are bound. They are not blessed, they are bound. There are so many people who on the outside look like these wonderful followers of Jesus and they're so holy and they're so right and they check all the spiritual boxes, but inside they are not blessed, they are bound. They're trying to keep up this facade of holiness and it ends up in this reality of legalism where they're following all these rules that they've added to the gospel. It's no longer just about Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus whatever I've added to it to keep my grip on, my, on the perspective of me being right and holy and good and perfect. And guess what is hiding behind all of that? Unbelievable levels of sin. They're just binding, binding, closing, 
closing. Bound. People are bound by their relational struggles. So desperate for approval. We are bound by it. Bound by it. So motivated by fear. Here's a little bonus for you. Wisdom never comes from fear. What does Jonathan say to Saul when he finds out that he has bound his men? What a stupid thing to do, Dad, right? What on earth were you thinking about? We could have won this battle today if you didn't do this. There's no wisdom never comes from fear. But wisdom almost always comes from freedom. We are bound. And then when we tighten our grip, we loosen our grip on integrity. Look at the story of Saul again. This is remarkable, isn't it? Saul binds the people, his army, with this this prohibition against eating. And then let me just read this to you, what happens, because this is unbelievable. So Jonathan eats the honey and so forth and so on. Then they go on and the battle presses further and they defeat the, the Philistines, so now they can eat, right? But they're famished. And so listen to what happens. Uh, da, 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 da. The day, that verse 31 to 14, that day after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Aijalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the spot, on the ground, ate them together, together with the blood. Uh-oh. Because for a Hebrew person to eat blood is anathema. Right? It's completely against God's law because blood is the symbol of life. And so the blood has to be gone for it to be kosher. And so one of Saul's men says, look what they're doing over there. And Saul says, ah. And he gathers a stone, he makes an altar and says, let's do it the right way and eat this way. But Jonathan tells him, this has all happened because of the unwise bondage that you have put on your people. What has been the result of it? Moral compromise. Moral compromise. And it's not just for other people, for the army, it's for Saul himself. When he is bound by appeasing his army so that they will think right of him, he morally compromises God's specific instructions to him and saves the king and all the plunder of the Amalekites. And his moral compromise extends even into his religious effort in repentance because it is not from the heart, it's from the fear of man. And so we tighten the grip on our kingdoms and when we do, we loosen the grip on our integrity. And there is moral compromise constantly. And guess what? It's not just in your life, but you are affecting countless others I'm a pastor I'm a husband I'm a dad amongst other things when I hold tightly to my kingdoms it doesn't just affect me it affects you it affects my wife it affects my kids and it affects everyone that they touch do you see this? Saul's self-preservation project led to the sin of his entire army not just to the sin of himself. 
And the ultimate reality of the self-preservation project is death. It's death. Jonathan, because he dipped his staff in honey, necessarily is sentenced to death. And there's this moment of sarcasm. I love Jonathan because he's sarcastic, and I can be sarcastic too. And he's like, he basically says to his dad, if you want to kill me because I ate some honey, then just do it. Let's get it over with. Just do it. But it's this Christ-like moment too where Jonathan is willing to stand in for the guilty party, his dad, and die an innocent death so that there can be preservation there. This is what Jesus has done for us. Isn't it? Jonathan constantly is this picture of Jesus. But the natural reality is death. And then also, the demand of God on the reign of Saul is the death of his reign. This is it, man. This is the last straw. It's like I told you back in chapter 13 and 12, and now it's finally absolutely happening. And next week when we're reading the story, we're going to find that uh, David is going to be anointed as the new king. This is it. It's done. Death is the result of the self-preservation project. Every single thing that Saul was desperate to keep, he has lost. Why? Because he was desperate to keep it. What about in your life? In the kingdoms that you are gripping so tightly right now? Whatever they may be. Whatever self-preservation project you were on, is it really bringing you joy? Or are you full of anxiety? There's no life in self-preservation projects. There is only death. It does not give life. It does not birth joy. But it most certainly does give and birth anxiety which leads to fear, which in turn funnels the whole cycle over and over and over again, and our lives are spinning out of control. Maybe you're here this morning, and this is you. And you're saying, well, that's great. Thanks for telling me that what I'm doing isn't right, but what should I be doing? How do I do this? How is there different? Is there really some way that I can actually have joy instead of anxiety? Is there really some way that something can give me life instead of me trying to maintain my life? And the answer is yes. And I sum it up in one simple word. It's called the gospel. Someone has taken your place. And someone has taken upon himself the rightful kingdom self-preservation project. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus came, and he lived this unbelievably perfect life without sin, self-preservation. He is the rightful king. Look at these two stories that happen in the life of Jesus and tell me if he doesn't get it right. At the very beginning of his ministry, remember, he's baptized and then he goes off into this temptation. We think that our temptations are difficult. Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the devil, right, himself. And the devil, at this great moment of temptation, takes him to this highest cliff and he looks down and he sees the entire kingdoms of the world. And the devil says to him, bow to me right now and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. And Jesus says, no. 
Because the instant gratification of gripping the kingdoms which are rightfully His is not greater than obedience to the God who is the Creator of the kingdom. Do you see it? And in the end, He's vindicated. And what do we know about the end of days? That every knee will what? Bow. At the foot of who? Jesus, the King of the what? Kingdom. What He was offered in the moment by the devil, but set aside in obedience to God, is now rightfully His. Self-preservation project done right. Or think about this, at the very end of His earthly life, when Judas betrays Him in the garden, and the armies of the high priests and the Romans come to arrest Him, and Peter, who is ready for a battle, you remember this in John? He pulls out his sword and he strikes at one of the slaves of the high priest. And poor Malchus loses an ear that day. Now we are not sure why Peter is cutting off an ear of a man. Some people have suggested that, remember, he's still sleepy from falling asleep while Jesus asked him to keep watch. And so he tried to kill him, but all he could get was an ear. You know? Whatever it is, Jesus says to, what, to Peter what? Put your sword away. We are not preserving an earthly thing. There's something greater. And it necessitates a cross and a resurrection. Because here's what Jesus was after. Not just self-preservation. He could have simply ascended to heaven at the end of his life. And God would have said, well done. You were perfect and blameless. And you deserve every part of return to heaven. But his plan wasn't just self-preservation. His plan was the preservation of the entire world world, and guess who was on his mind most? You. On the cross, Jesus endured the pain of separation from God and the physical pain of death. Why? Because it wasn't about self-preservation. It was about you preservation. And now, because of his willingness to do that, and because of the victory of resurrection, which we'll celebrate on Easter and celebrate every day, what is rightfully Jesus's is now also rightfully yours. He has built a kingdom that is beyond all things and because of His effort to not just preserve it for Himself but open the gates to everyone has enabled your entry into the full inheritance of God. Set aside your self-preservation project. The kingdom is already announced. It already waits. It's already there for you. The doors are wide open. Jesus has done it on the cross. The resurrection has announced it. Just as much as the tomb is empty and the door is open, the stone is rolled away. The door to the kingdom is wide open. It is yours. It is not for someday. It is for now. That is the only way that you will have joy and life. If your life is filled with everything else, just set it down. Jesus says, my burden is light. I'll take yours. You take mine. You have been striving so hard to build self-worth And yet there's a God who says, I just love you because. Forget what everyone else says about you. I think you're the greatest thing ever. Matter of fact, you're just like I created you to be, and I wouldn't want you to be any different. I love you, failures and all. Stop. Put aside your holiness, kingdom, self-preservation exercise. Jesus isn't interested 
in your, your, your gold stars from Sunday school, and he's not interested in you checking off your religious boxes. He's not interested in you putting on a facade of holiness on the outside. He is simply interested in you saying from the depth of your heart, I can't even do this. And guess what? He already has. You don't have to preserve holiness. He's already done it. So walk into it. Set aside all the anxiety of legalism and religion and all the fear that comes out of it and this, this, this unfortunate perception of God as a God of anger who's ready to strike you down because you don't live up to his expectations. That's not the gospel. And step into the beauty of grace and mercy that no matter how much you screw up, and guess what we're going to, your kingdom is preserved. And all of the material things that we're holding so tightly to, for whatever excuse we're giving, we're trying to get through to retirement, we're trying to just have a good life for our family. Listen, again, money, houses, cars, none of that stuff is bad. But like when you're gripping it really tight, then we've got issues. And I, listen, I grip it really tight, okay? Because, you know, you're a dad, you're a husband, you want to make sure that we all do this. But what if you just stopped? How the anxiety would recede from your life and you would step into the full bounty of God's blessing that says, I'll take care of you. If the birds don't go without food, how much more is my perfect creation not going to go without blessing? No one's talking about the life you've always dreamed of and the bank account you've always wanted. That's not right. We're talking about the fact that God has gotcha and the kingdom is preserved. So in Matthew chapter 16, this is what Jesus says about what it means to follow him. Listen to these words. Peter has just said that, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, wow, flesh and blood hasn't told you, told you this, but the Spirit of God has revealed this to you. And then Jesus said, now I've got to go die so I can make this kingdom good for everyone and not just for me. And Peter opens his mouth and says, not a chance. We're not letting you die. That's never going to happen. And then Jesus, who has just said to Peter that spirit, the Spirit of God has revealed this to him, now says, get behind me, Satan. Right? So we see the massive spiritual battle that's going on even in our lives. God is working and the evil is working. And then this is what Jesus says about what it means to follow him. Verse 24 of Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Listen to this. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Anyone who wants to save their life will lose it. 
Anyone who wants to preserve their kingdom will lose it. Saul wanted to preserve his kingdom and he lost it. Let go. Because anyone who gives up their kingdom will gain life. The life that only comes from the creator of life itself. This is what Jesus has done for us. Can I pray with you?